The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I'm your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a show that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview high-profile public figures. In each show, I also highlight an exceptional organization, such as a nonprofit, a charity, a cause, or an exceptional individual who does great work in the community. After the headlines, I interview California Congressman Lou Correa from Orange County and the managing director of the historic Alex Theater in Glendale, Maria Sahagian. A new CBS News YouGov poll revealed that Vice President Joe Biden maintains his grip on the 2020 race for president. Biden is up 52% to 42% over President Trump among likely voters nationally, and he has 50% to 44% edge over Trump in the key battleground state of Wisconsin as well. Biden's 10-point and 6-point advantages are the same as they were when CBS News and YouGov polled the contests before the party conventions. Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, said that his magazine's story about Trump calling Americans who died in battle losers and suckers were just the tip of the iceberg. He added, I would fully expect more reporting to come out about this and more confirmation and new pieces of information in the coming days and weeks. We have a responsibility and we're going to do it regardless of what he says, meaning President Trump. COVID-19 shows no sign of slowing down. So far worldwide, 880,000 people have died from this virus. In the U.S., 188,000 people have died. In California, that number is 13,708, and 6,000 people have died in L.A. County. For the latest numbers uh, for COVID-19, please visit the websites of CDC, World Health Organization, and the Johns Hopkins University. The Blunt Post with Vic. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. I am going to keep today's Let's Get Blunt pretty brief. I want to tell you about a saying or slogan in 12-step that says, don't keep going back to the hardware store asking for milk. And that's the story with Trump. After 20,000 plus lies in uh, just under four years, we know who he is. So I want to focus the next couple of months on Vice President Biden and Senator Harris, because that's what Trump does, just denies, 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 and lies, and that's all that comes out of his mouth and his administration, his cronies, etc. So let's just be blunt about it. Let's get blunt. Congressman Lou Correa was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 2016 after having been a community leader for over 20 years is a staunch advocate for public health and safety, healthcare, including mental health, and safety programs for children. He has championed affordable higher education and taxpayer equity while protecting taxpayers by fighting waste, fraud, and abuse. Since entering office, Congressman Correa has introduced legislation to protect the legal rights of immigrants, care for veterans, and fight against the wasteful spending of taxpayer money. Congressman Correa is a member of the House Judiciary Committee. 
and House Committee on Homeland Security. He's a member of several dozen caucuses, including the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, the Congressional Homelessness Caucus, LGBTQ Equity Caucus, Armenian Caucus, and the Congressional Small Business Caucus. Congressman Correa, thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic. How are you doing today? Good, Vic, and thank you for your interest in important issues for this country as well as this world. I'm glad to be with you this morning. Absolutely. I'm very grateful to have you and your time and your wisdom. And, you know, so we're going to go right into it. Things change, you know, not even every day, but like every few hours, we have something major that breaks. And as a member of Congress, you have a vantage point. So just generally, what's your perspective on where we are as a country and what's happening today? You know, Vic, thank you for that great question. Uh, Every election, we say this is the most important election of our lifetime, and I really believe this is the most important election of our lifetime, not only because of what's at stake in this country, our identity, and where we want to go, but I think the world as a whole. The world is looking for leadership. The world is looking for somebody to step up the way the United States has been a world leader for the last 60, 70 years since World War II. And uh, that's why these foreign countries, China, Russia, the Middle East, Europe, are all waiting to see what happens with the election that's upon us in November. This is the most important election of our lifetime. And, and a lot's at stake, not being partisan, but, you know, we have a leader right now in the White House that uh, would rather divide than to unite us. And, uh, Indeed. you know, America is a country that is made of immigrants uh, from all over the world. And, and that's our strength, which is our intellect, our diversity. Uh, we've been famous for attracting the best and brightest from all over the world. And we've kind of forgot that recently. But that's what keeps us strong. Absolutely. Well said. And of course, it's unfathomable what's happened in the last almost four years and sort of like the daily um, pain the Americans have to endure due to, I, I can be partial, to this administration and our, and our president's lack of leadership, to say the least. And, you know, Vic, I got to say, we, we can begin to blame people, but I think we voters have the biggest responsibility for what happened four years ago. I remember campaigning for Congress, and I remember campaigning for uh, who I thought was going to be the first woman president, Hillary Clinton. And I would go knock at the doors of young people and say, please vote. Some of them would say, oh, you know, not a big thing. And I would say, look, this this candidate Mr. Trump is promising to do all these things. And the young people would say he's not really going to do them. And then other voters would tell me it's crooked Hillary. And I would say, why do you believe those blogs? Why do you believe that stories, you know, that come out on, on the Internet that are not really confirmed? They're not really legit. And at the end of the day, it was a well-designed campaign to suppress our vote. And I believe that we as voters have to make sure we're educated and understand how powerful and how dangerous the Internet is. Those those stories that just pop up on you all of a sudden. You know, I sit on Homeland Security today I, in Congress. 
I'm a member of Homeland Security. The security of our country is what we deal with. Internet security, election security, and we've had countless top secret briefings on how other countries are probing us again, wanting to affect our election. All of us know Russia meddled in our 2016 election. They affected the outcome. Guess what? They're back at it. Now I'm hearing China is at it. They want in on it too. At the end of the day, two basic principles to keep in mind. Number one, vote early. And number two, make sure that, you know, all these stories that you hear about at the last minute, please discount them. Do your homework now, decide to vote now, and move forward. Wow, thank you for that, Congressman. Since we're talking about that, I want to ask you this. So the election is less than two months away, and uh, we recently learned the Department of Homeland Security, on which you are a member, withheld evidence of Russian interference from Congress for months. So what is Congress doing to stop this and to protect our election? You're absolutely right. There was intelligence that Homeland Security at the you know executive level discovered Russian bulletins talking about trying to disseminate misinformation about candidate Biden. That information was never shared with Congress. And to me, that's a major transgression, major wrong of Homeland Security. The committee, the, the agency of Homeland Security not sharing such vital, critical information with Congress. That is a wrong, and we as Congress are doing our investigative work in discovering this information and making sure that the public knows. We're supposed to be co-equals to the executive branch. We're supposed to be equal uh, to the president. Congress is supposed to be equal to Congress, and yet under this administration, the president is almost running roughshod over all of us. And as every time you see the third branch of government, which is the Supreme Court, come out with a decision that the president doesn't like, what does he say? They don't like me. Right. You know, it's controlled by somebody else. No, Mr. President, we're co-equal branches of government and the courts are supposed to check you. And Congress is supposed to have oversight over the executive branch. That's called democracy, and that's what we're doing as a congressional branch of government. We are investigating. We are making sure that the president is held accountable to the best we can. But remember something, Vic. The most powerful man in the world is the president. Over the last 20 years, we have given him, the executive office, more power than he's ever had. You know, and, and this president today believes that he's above all. George Washington, our first president, was a great president because of what we, he did. But most importantly, but because after eight years, George Washington said, I'm done. He could have been king. The founders of this country, many of them wanted to make him king. And he said, I'm done. I'm moving on, letting somebody else take over. That's what democracy is. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with Congressman Lou Correa. That's a really good segue because next I was going to ask you that the president has repeatedly refused to say that he would accept the election results if he loses. Are you concerned about that? 
Absolutely. As a person who believes in democracy, as an individual who has seen many members of my community go and fight for our freedoms, for our country, for democracy, and many of them make the ultimate sacrifice, I am concerned that we will have a constitutional crisis after the election. If we don't have a decisive victory by Mr. Biden on Election Day, the week, the days after Election Day, I believe we will have a constitutional crisis. Um, as you know, the uh, the Joint Chiefs, uh, you know, our, our highest generals of this country have said that they will respect the election results. Now we're trying to get that same commitment from the Department of Homeland Security. After 9-1-1, we created the biggest bureaucracy ever called Homeland Security. Right. We put in all the different agencies into Homeland Security to protect our country. That's a big agency with a lot of police power. We want to make sure that Homeland Security will also abide by the will of the voters. Is yeah. this a concern? Absolutely. This is not only a Democratic concern. You see more and more Republicans, elected Republicans, former Republicans, coming forward and saying we're supporting Mr. Biden because they see what is going on at the national level. They see the dangers here. Um, and yeah. too many people have died for this country, for our democracy to see democracy just move away. You're so right. And, you know, there's one more thing that's actually even more pressing in terms of its the deadline is coming up about democracy and what it's going to mean for Americans. And that's the census. And I know that it's a very important uh, subject for you. The deadline is on is September 30th. So I just want to hear from you about the importance of census and why everyone to take uh, has to take it seriously and participate. You know, the census has been something that's been done in this country since our beginning of this nation, since the birth of this nation. And what the census is is very simple. It's the basis of our political power. It's the basis of our democracy. Why? Because based on that count, then you draw up congressional districts, not only in California, but across the country. We have 425 members of con Congress. Each one of those members of Congress represents an equal number of individuals. An equal number of individuals based on the census so we're predicting that California, for example, will lose one to two congressional seats to Texas or to other states because our population hasn't been growing as fast as that of other states. So we begin to understand that a clear count means one person, one vote. It means that we have equal power to other areas of the nation. The problem we have here, for example, in my district is we're a heavily immigrant district, not all citizens. And when the president comes out and says you shouldn't be counted, it scares people. My constituents, new immigrants living next to the greatest generation, these folks, hardworking people, all they want to do is work hard look for the American dream, 
and they want nothing to do with breaking the law. So when the president comes out and says these people shouldn't be counted or you shouldn't be counted, you know what? These people say, I don't want to mess with the system. I'm just going to go hide. Right. And that depresses the count. We had a hearing in Judiciary Committee. We had Attorney General Barr there, the highest ranking police officer in this country. And I asked him point blank. I asked him national TV. I said, Mr. Barr, should undocumented individuals be counted? And he went into a long, I said, sir, let me cut you off. Article, you know, 14th Amendment, Article 2 says every person shall be counted. Every person. And, you know, your department back a few years actually came out with a memo saying illegal aliens, I quote them, illegal aliens should also be counted. I wouldn't be used that term, but right. the memo said everybody is to be counted. And he kind of blinked and, and uh, went off to another answer. My point to you, sir, is the president is not following the law by trying to suppress our count on the census. Well, on, on that note, William Barr is the same person who a few days ago said that he's not sure if voting twice is actually illegal. After President Trump said to uh, North Carolinas to vote by mail and then show up at the poll as well. So the lack of responsibility and following the, the rule of law it's rampant in, in the Trump administration, and that includes uh, William Barr and all the way down, unfortunately. Well, Vic, let me tell you, this almost sounds like you've got a, a dictator in the making, yep. and, and that's a strong statement, and let me explain to you why. Uh, a few days ago, Trump's former chief of staff, Secretary General Kelly, came out and said, anytime you said no to President Trump, it would be like kissing a chainsaw his words okay president trump comes out and says people should vote twice what does mr Barr do he tries to back his boss on a clear lie yeah anytime you as a californian go vote it says they're under penalty of perjury you can't vote twice and we have systems in place here in orange county and other parts of the state and I'm sure other states as well, to make sure people don't vote twice. And heaven forbid, heaven help you if you vote twice, because that information will be turned over to the local district attorney for prosecution. But again, Mr. Barr was forced to essentially make the president look credible with a lie. That's the challenge that we have. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with Congressman Lou Correa. Yes, one of many enablers of, uh, of our president, who I think is a dictator, and he's sort of turned the country into a totalitarian regime, and uh, it kind of gets worse on a daily basis. Now he's uh, attacking free press. He's uh, stopped military's newspaper. So who knows what's next in the next couple of months, what he's going to grasp. And I know that sounds outrageous to say you got a dictator in the making, but when you have a president that says, I like that Xi Jinping can be president for many, many years. I like what Putin has done, which is, you know, he can be president for many, many years as well. When he begins to make those statements, it's essentially saying what he thinks. Instead of saying, I respect democracy, 
I respect the peaceful transition of one administration to another. He goes out of his way to respect and admire these strong men in the world. Yeah, there's a there is a saying that says, uh, "Stop going to the hardware store asking for milk." I don't think we're going to get milk at the White House, the current White House. Going back to what you said, the best tool that we have, the power, is to vote, to make sure and, we vote early. And, and again, Vic, I got to say, we as voters have the ultimate responsibility. We know the misinformation is coming on the internet. Facebook just announced that they would be, you know, essentially monitoring for misinformation. It's coming. Yeah. You can't stop it. It's coming. And I tell people, understand the context of that information. Understand we have an important election. Understand that for the first, probably for the first time in my lifetime, I, I see brazen, brazen acts by foreign countries, our enemies, Countries that have nuclear missiles pointed at us trying to affect the outcome of our election. Indeed. Congressman, if I may change uh, topics just briefly, I wanted to ask you about uh, cannabis and just general drug policy. Uh, Congress is expected to vote on the MORE Act, which is legislation that will legalize marijuana at the federal level this month. Can you tell me about this and And, and what's important? Where are we going with this? Sure. And, and, and Vic, you, you just asked a question they could probably talk about for a number of days. And the, the big picture, so to speak, the elephant in the room is the war on drugs in this country and in this world. 50 years ago, plus minus, we declared war on drugs. The problem was the solution to drugs should not have been criminal, but rather medical. Drugs, drug addiction is a medical issue, not a criminal issue. We have put too many people in jail. They come out, they're not cured. They continue with their criminal challenges. And so marijuana is one of those drugs that has been put on that list that arguably at the federal level has no medicinal properties has no medicinal purposes. It is the worst of the worst drugs. 50 years of this fight, as you know, more than half of the population in this country lives under a jurisdiction, state jurisdiction, that allows cannabis use one form or another. But at the federal level, marijuana is still classified as a class one drug, which means you can't even do research into what marijuana is good for, what marijuana is not good for. Israel, way ahead of us, they're exporting cannabis, exporting cannabis products. There's other countries that are doing research into cannabis, but we can't. Why? Because as long as cannabis is a class one drug, even a university that begins to do research into cannabis is at risk of losing their federal funding in other areas of the university. And so what the MORE Act tries to do is really, in general, try to de decriminalize it, declassify cannabis, so we can look into what cannabis is good for and what cannabis is not good for. Uh, as you know already, I've been doing a lot of research and work on cannabis probably for the last 15 years. A lot of my veterans, my veterans, Men and women who have gone off to fight for my country 15 years ago started coming to me and said, Lou, we want 
to use cannabis. We don't want opioids. We want cannabis to help us with those invisible wounds that we have brought back, the mental invisible wounds that they bring back from the battlefield. But they couldn't. They were scared because the VA would say that's a big no-no. And what I've done, in addition to the Moore Act, which we are going to vote on, and it will probably pass Congress because this is not a partisan issue. Both Democrats and Republicans support the Moore Act. The problem is the White House has made it a partisan issue because, as you know, under this administration, uh, the coal memo, the famous coal memo Mm -hmm. under Obama – was rescinded. What did the Cole memo say? The Cole memo essentially said that if you have a state that has a viable regulatory framework, then we're not going to enforce federal law on the state of California, so to speak. But once that Cole memo was rescinded, effectively, every small business, everybody that deals with cannabis, the thousands and thousands of employees, is now subject to federal law and to being arrested. So the more act hopefully is a step back or forward, I should say, to essentially doing what the Cole memo wanted to do, which is, you know what, uh, let's not make miracle marijuana a federal crime anymore. Yeah. And the countless people who've been in prison or were in prison for years only because they had cannabis in their possession. Well, the, the problem isn't only that. It's once you let somebody out of prison and they're on probation, so to speak, part of their probation says you will not do any of these things, including using illegal drugs. Well, cannabis is one of those legal drugs. We have somebody that's on probation. They, he gets caught with cannabis in his blood. Uh, you know, any hints of it, you're back in jail. Right. And so this continues to be a recurring theme. Again, 50 years of war on drugs. This should not have been a criminal issue. This should have been a medical issue. And today, for example, today, Vic, we have an opioid crisis. Everybody's focused on COVID-19, but that opioid crisis is probably getting worse, worse, and worse. It shouldn't be a criminal. It should be a medical solution. The challenges we have with police departments today, with police, the problem, the biggest problem I see right now out there, Vic, as we have set up police to fail. Why do you give the job to police officers to enforce unenforceable drug laws? Why do you give police the job of fixing the mental Ill, mentally ill out in the streets? Why do you give the police the job of addressing the issue of homelessness? Right. These issues are really medical. They are not criminal. But you say, and I'm not going to blame it on the police department or the city council. I'm going to blame it on all of us because when you have somebody that's mentally ill, somebody that's talking to themselves out in the street, somebody that you know has major issues, what do you do? You call the police. Right. And, And what do you do? You want the police to fix the problem right then and there. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with Congressman Lou Correa. Yeah, and you said it right. A lot of people who abuse drugs are self-medicating because their uh, mental health is not being addressed because 
we don't have the resources and we don't have the system set up for people to seek mental health and to seek recovery. And as you said, the jail system, the prison system, they're not rehabilitating people. They're just imprisoning them and then letting them out without any tools, uh, any change. And uh, so the cycle continues. And that's definitely very challenging. I commend you for having spent so many years investing uh, in this particular uh, issue among others. And you brought up COVID-19, Congressman. Are there any concerns that are specific to your district in North Orange County in terms of COVID-19 and, and where we are? There are many. And the biggest challenge that we have right now, Vic, is uh, I live in the epicenter of COVID-19 in terms of infections. Uh, a couple of big issues. Number one, this is a very densely populated area. Central Orange County, our population density here in California is second only to San Francisco. And you know, San Francisco, you have a lot of high rises. Here in Orange County, Central, my district, a lot of apartments, overcrowded apartments. You have three generations in one household. So when you have one person with COVID, you get the whole neighborhood that's come down with COVID. The bigger issue is how serious do we take it? A lot of people wearing face masks, a lot of people doing social distancing, but let's face it, Vic, we have not gotten the leadership from the White House in terms of how to address COVID-19. It's first, it was, you know, a, a democratic hoax. Uh, it's not real. People are confused whether they should, you know, continue to wear face masks, social distancing. I think There's so the, many. President, the president, what he should have said months ago, he should have said yes. This is a Chinese virus that originated in China. Okay. He went and then what he, what he should have said was, I'm the man in charge. I'm going to run this show. Instead, what he said was, this is not my responsibility. It's not me. It's a state issue. You know, it's not a state issue. The federal government is spending trillions, not billions, trillions of dollars on this COVID challenge. We still don't have enough protective PPE. We still don't manufacture it here in the U.S. Not enough. The testing is still not adequate. Yeah. And, of course, the vaccine, uh, we're still trying to figure that one out. So you ask what the challenges are. Here in Central Orange County, we do have high infection rates. We're working through it. Um, we're all trying to do the best we can helping each other out. After this interview, I'll be going off to do some food distributions because at the end of the day, we can look at the federal government, the state government to help us. But at the end of the day, it's about neighbors helping neighbors, people understanding that others in need, uh, that our person next door in our neighborhood lost his job, her job, and we've all got to get together and make sure we survive. Thank you for that, Congressman. Before um, I let you go, because I know you, you have to run, is there anything that I haven't covered, anything you'd like to add or discuss? Vic, I think what needs to be emphasized and repeated is the importance, again, of this election. I will say it again. This is the most important election of our lifetime. It will decide what kind of country we will have. It will decide what kind of world we will have. It'll decide whether the United States takes up the world leadership again on issues like climate change. Do we again set the pace or do we move 
out of the way and let China or somebody else begin to be the major players in world policy. It'll also decide who we are as a nation. We know who we are. We're a nation of immigrants. We're a democracy, not a dictatorship. And this election will decide that and much, much more. I ask people, be informed voters, vote early, and let's take back our country. Wow. Congressman Correll, thank you so much for your time, for your generosity, and um, hope to speak with you again soon, and good luck today. Thank you, Vic, and uh, thank you for your interest as well. Have thank a good you, day. Sir. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was California Congressman Luke Correa from Orange County. Thank you so much, Congressman, for your time and for being on The Blunt Post with Vic. The Blunt Post with Vic. Maria Sahakian is the managing director of the historic Alex Theater in Glendale, which celebrated its 95th anniversary over the weekend. Alex Theater is operated by the nonprofit management company, Glendale Arts. Maria oversees the iconic 1925 Art Deco Theater, which is host to several resident companies, including Alex Film Society, Gay Men's Chorus of Los Angeles, Glendale Youth Orchestra, Los Angeles Ballet, Musical Theater Guild, and the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. Welcome to the Blunt Post with Vic. How are you? Hi, Vic. Thank you for having me. I'm well. Thank you so much. I hope you're well, too. I'm doing great. Um, And uh, I appreciate you coming on the show. I know you had a very eventful weekend. You had a huge fundraiser for uh, Alex Theater in Glendale. We did indeed. Uh, We celebrated the theater's 95th birthday over the weekend. And as with everything else this year, we had to go virtual. So we hosted a very successful virtual telethon over 12 hours of programming with people from decades of who have decades of history with the Alex sharing their favorite stories, their memories, their well wishes. It was really a beautiful event and it brought people together. It It was very exciting. That's really good to hear, especially now when the arts um, need all the help they can get. And of course, exactly. Alex Theater is a gem in, in the Jewel City, as Glendale is called, uh, a beautiful Art Deco theater right on Brand Boulevard. And um, Yes, exactly. Uh, you, you nailed it. Uh, the Alex has been a landmark in Glendale since 1925, and it has a storied history, just as you would imagine, dating back to, you know, when in the 1950s, the Hollywood studios would preview their films here at the Alex with the stars coming to watch for the first time, in some cases, uh, their films with an audience, uh, straight through to, of course, uh, where we were just a few months ago when we had to unfortunately shut down operations. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Didn't Charlie Chaplin have his first studio in Glendale on Glendale Avenue? I believe so. I believe so. I would have to go back and check some of the facts on that, but I I believe that is the case. Yeah, I think um, what's now called Glendale Studios, which houses Reverie, used to be, uh, it was the first studio that Charlie Chaplin built um, prior to going to a lot in West Hollywood and then of course 20th Century Fox so Glendale uh, has a little bit of history with that. It does and you have the in-depth history right there. Yeah yeah I want to sort of uh, zoom out to a a greater performing arts 
um, venues in LA. We have so many, and you know, some consistently need the support of the public because you know there's this dichotomy of people wanting performing arts to be affordable for the middle class and working class and students and low income people so they can they can enjoy it. But on the other hand, it costs a lot to operate a a venue, and so. A lot of them have always needed patrons and donations and, and such. How are you? You're in the middle of this. You're, you know, well, uh, much more than I do. How are they uh, surviving? Of course, Alex Theater as well, but just in general. Sure. Uh, well, I'm sure uh, every venue would tell you a different story about how they're weathering this current uh, situation that everyone is in. In the case of the Alex, uh, the venue itself is owned by the city of Glendale and operated by our nonprofit, Glendale Arts. We manage and and uh, operate the theater. And between the management fee we, we receive from the city uh, to to be the stewards of uh, the venue, as well as, of course, our typical um, revenue stream, which is primarily based off of booking the theater and um, and hosting events at the, at our venue, and of course uh, with donations and contributions and and grants and uh, funding from different foundations that we're able to secure, that is the general makeup of of our income. And um, at this time, of course, different venues, you know, in some cases, we're hearing that some have completely shut down operations until they can resume. In other cases, like ours as well, they've had to reduce their staff size, their operating hours and capacity, and um, and through different means, I'm sure, you know, including loans and, and other means that are available during this time, are bridging the gap until uh, we are able to resume normal operations and at full capacity. So what does that look like? What? How do you see the future? Sure. Of course, there's no telling when we'll be able to get back to um, operating as normal. And it's pretty well known that the live entertainment industry was the first to uh, shut down because the very nature of what we do is gathering people. Sure. And, um, and we are well aware that our place is at the end of the line once things are able to get back up and running. We're going to be the last industry to reopen. So there are certainly a lot of movements out there that are uh, bringing attention to this. And, and and there are so many facets to it as well. It's not as simple as being able to reopen and we're good to go. There are going to be different phases. And in addition to those phases, uh, there's the economics. Of course, this is all once it's safe to to come back. That's the first and foremost priority. Right. But uh, then, you know, it's not simply about whether we can reopen, but it's also about the economics, and they have to work for everyone. That includes us as the operators of the venue. It includes the promoters, producers, and other presenters who book the, the space and uh, host their performances with us. If they have to, um, they have to proceed with a reduced capacity audience size. It may not work financially. So there are many facets to this, and that makes it an even more complicated uh, equation, if you will, as to when we realistic will, realistically will be able to uh, get back to full operations. 
This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Maria Sahakian, the Managing Director of the historic Alex Theater in Glendale. Wow, yeah, so it's a little bit of a one month at a time, one week at a time to see how things turn out, you know, whether Absolutely. we're going to have a vaccine soon. And, you know, and I, I think even after, you know, after you're given the green light to go ahead and the phases start, there's also the public's comfort level as to how quickly and how much they're going to gather in theaters and concerts and things like that. And that remains to be seen how comfortable people feel. Yeah. So absolutely, the public's comfort level will play a significant role uh, as to when realistically we are able to host uh, performances again, because if the audience isn't there, then we're not able to do that. We, you know, we want to get to a point where we can have both the artists and the audiences under the same roof, our roof. But um, as I said, both from a safety and comfort level standpoint, from an economic standpoint, all of these factors have to come together and work for everyone in order for us to move into the new future. So let me ask you this. For those that are, who are listening and are pre-planning, I know, but I'd like for you to tell <laughs> everyone, why book the Alex Theater? What are some of the unique things, incentives, elements about the Alex that make it a great venue? I'm happy to, I'm happy to talk about that. We have an amazing history and a foundation with so many um, incredible groups. We have a base of six resident companies here, the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, Los Angeles Ballet, the Gay Men's Chorus, Glendale Youth Orchestra, the Musical Theater Guild, and the Alex Film Society. And in addition to them, uh, dozens of other groups who call the Alex home. And there's a reason for that. They have an experience here that is unparalleled in many ways and we're very our staff is very hands-on we are welcoming we um you know we have a team of professionals who has decades of expertise in between them in various facets of of performing arts and live entertainment and uh, we you know we we recognize that people are entrusting their their artistic vision, their life's work, their passion with us and in our hands. And we take it very seriously and we, you know, do our best to make sure that on both sides of the curtain, everybody who we work with or welcome to the Alex has, uh, has the best experience they can. And, and I think the, uh, the results speak for themselves. We've, um, you know, we host artists who come to us from all over the world. We, you know, we work with a lot of studios and production companies who film their uh, TV shows and, and other projects with us. And they come back to us because the experience they have uh, makes them feel like this is, you know, this is home. This is where we want to take our project back to. And we grow with them. You know, in a lot of cases, there are artists and events that have launched with us on a smaller scale scale. And what they do with us catapults them to the next level. And, you know, we so we become a part of this history um, as they reach, you know, other levels of success that, again, it was a collaborative effort. They came together with us to make that happen. And that allowed that played a role, uh, I should say, uh, in in allowing that further growth and success. Yeah, and absolutely. I've, I've been to the Alex many times for different shows and 
I, I have had a great experience with your staff and the venue. It's it's beautiful. I love hanging out in the courtyard before a show and you know having a soda, etc. Yeah, and that forecourt that you referenced is only one of a few that exist in Southern California. So that's another very special feature that we have here. And our, you know, our beautiful Art Deco marquee and the 100-foot tall tower um, overlook that space and are uh, just a beautiful entrance to, to our facility. Yeah. So you just turned 95 and you had this big celebration. What, what does the next five months look like? Sure. So currently, uh, the film and TV industry is up and running. So we are able to host um, host location shoots. And um, there are several in the pipeline that uh, we're working to uh, make happen over the next few months. So that level, that type of activity, you know, of course, done safely is um, is able to happen at this point. And we're looking at other you know, other uses of the space too, that wouldn't traditionally be something that, you know, people would be able to do. And that includes everything from using our marquee uh, as an advertising space for, you know, commercial communications or personal messages to other private uses of the theater uh, that, you know, our outdoor forecourt in particular, that can be safely done. So in addition to that, as a a source of bringing in some level of revenue during this time, we are also, we're essentially building from the ground up. And we know that going into what the post COVID world is going to look like for us, things are going to be very different. And we're doing our best to anticipate as much of that as possible and put the preparations in place so that once we do have the green light to proceed, we're not behind, we are ready, and we um, aren't scrambling then to prepare uh, about how to function in, you know, in this world and how to welcome audiences safely and, and, and everything that is you know, going to have to be and is being examined and looked at from a new lens. And, and so we're, we're just, we're rebuilding in a sense. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Maria Sahakian, the managing director of the historic Alex Theater in Glendale. Yeah, it's a long road ahead for all of us. So I want to ask you, you've had you know, your successful fundraiser just over the weekend, but how can people help who want to be patrons of the arts, patron of Alex Theater, Glendale Arts? What can they do? So at this time, we welcome uh, creative and innovative ideas for how to engage Glendale Arts in the Alex Theater. It's uh, this time allows that kind of opportunity that we may not have seen as much of um, in the past. And so, you know, we're open to working and collaborating with people who recognize the importance of our cultural institutions and want to preserve them and make sure that all the past generations that have benefited from them and enjoyed them uh, now get to pass that on to um, their future generations. And so, um, you know, it's certainly it starts with having funding stream in place for us to be able to continue this work and to provide programs and services to those audiences that we serve. Yeah, I mean, well said. And, you know, I know that for your anniversary, uh, those that could and would contribute $500 or more, they could get a plaque on a seat in your balcony. Is that still um, happening? Yes, we do have a seat naming program, okay. and 
Absolutely. So uh, anyone is welcome to contact us about that. They can pick their seat location, provided that it's available, of course. Sure. And it's a really special way to uh, have a piece of history. It's not. To... It's a great deal too. It's only five hundred. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. It starts at five hundred. It goes up to twenty five hundred, depending on the location. But um, but at five hundred, yes, it's um, it's fairly reasonable for for something like that. Absolutely. And Maria, I want to just repeat the website you gave us is alextheaterbirthday.org. Yes, that was the portal through which the birthday uh, telethon and fundraiser was run. Right. And and theater in Alex Theater is spelled the British way. Yes, it is. It is indeed. It often gets misspelled. And and yeah. fair enough, if you're driving or walking by our marquee, you're just going to see the letters Alex, A-L-E-X, without the word theater. And so it's very easy to assume that it is spelled with the E-R spelling, yeah. but it is in fact R-E, and I appreciate your mentioning that. <laughs> yeah, I just don't want anyone to go to their address bar and put alextheater.org and say, <laughs> why isn't this going to the right place? So it's theater with T-R-E at the end. Yes. Uh, for those of you, and um, please donate. I mean, at the arts, I you know Maria knows this. I went to theater school. I have a degree in theater arts. I um, know the importance of it. I see so many live shows every year, and uh, I can't fathom not having experienced theater, ballet, and uh, opera, and music, and, and beautiful venues. And yeah, what and... venue you see it in is also so important. And Alex Theater is just beautiful. It is. It's a character in the story. It's part of the experience. And yes, we can't be enjoying these things at the Alex at this time. But, you know, we all know that a lot of what has been getting us through these difficult last few months is, you know, the the film and TV and other theatrical performances that have been made available for people to watch from the comfort of their homes. And and so it's easy to take for granted the value of what the arts uh, and entertainment bring to people's lives. But um, it's also what we reach for when we need solace, when we need a laugh, when we need to just um, escape for a moment. So you certainly, of course... Uh, understand the importance and uh, it it just bears repeating because it is easy to take for granted. I I don't usually sort of chime in too much to tell personal stories but I think this is apropos because and you know this Maria you know in theater school studying the ancient Greeks and Egyptians and the importance of the arts you know Plato who was who's not a theater enthusiast per se Plato was a practical philosopher and a statesman, and he wrote this book about how to govern and run a country. The the arts, which back then were called the poetics, was so important in Greek society that it was the first thing that he tackles in The Republic, which is his book, The Republic. Mm. And then Aristotle, who, well, Plato taught Socrates, and Socrates taught Aristotle. Aristotle wrote a book called Poetics. So mm-hmm. the Greeks just knew how important the arts were for for society and it it continued to be like that you know so for example in south africa uh, in the 20th century after the arrest of um, nelson mandela who was part of the um, black national congress so much of you know there was so much oppression 
that theater really became a huge tool in educating people about apartheid and how hateful and oppressive and and violent it was. And of course, until the the fall of apartheid, theater um, was very important. The playwright uh, Athol Fugart, South African, um, was arrested and prohibited from leaving South Africa, and all kinds of things were done to him because he he used theater to question the government and the system. So there's my there's my uh, sure. two cents on that. Yeah, and those examples you gave speak volumes and really, again, uh, get at the core of why what is central to our mission. And, and that's what we're advocating for is the appreciation of and the advancement of these important, important elements of our society that um, that have just been instrumental in, in so many, you know, in so many ways for people personally. Um, just, you know, you think of a, a song you hear and people have a re- reaction, a response. They're moved by it. It makes them happy. It makes them reflect. Uh, same with, you know, a theatrical scene you might see played out on the stage. It's it's just the power uh, to make us think and feel and heal. And thank you for um, doing all this work and keeping it alive. I know we'll be back and stronger than ever. I want to thank you for being on the show at this very busy time and uh, tell our listeners the website again. You can go actually to Alex Theater's website, which is alextheater.org. Yes. And um, there you can reach uh, Maria, <laughs> send her an email, and uh, make a donation to uh, preserve the arts. And uh, Maria, is there anything else you'd like to add that I didn't bring up? I thank you, Vic, for having me. I appreciate the conversation. I appreciate your shining a spotlight on this topic, which, of course, is near and dear to my heart. And I thank you for your support as well. And as you mentioned, uh, anyone is welcome. Thank you. Anyone is welcome to go to alextheater.org, which is the the theater's proper website, and um, find my contact information on there. And I'd be happy to... Uh, to have a conversation uh, and further this dialogue that we've started here. Fantastic. Thank you again, Maria. Have a great week. And uh, thanks for being on The Blunt Post with Vic. Thank you, Vic. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Maria Sahakian, the managing director of Alex Theater in Glendale, which just turned 95 years old. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic, Maria. Much appreciated. The Blunt Post with Vic. Today, I'm going to read you a tweet from Jim Gaffigan, the comedian. He said, Trump literally ran Paul Ryan out of politics. Why? Paul Ryan knew Trump was poison. So does Romney. Trump is not a conservative or even a Republican. You know that. You know Barr is dirty. You know if Trump gets reelected, it's over. How many books have to be written? Before I go, I would like to thank my tirelessly brilliant producer, Ricky Herrera, and you. Thank you for joining me today for another episode of The Blonde Post with Vic. Uh, tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Vic Jarami. The Blunt Post with Vic.